This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Good morning, church. My name is Max Gilbert, uh, if I haven't met you. It's Max Gilbert, if I haven't met you. Either way, I'm Max. Um, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, I echo everything that Mr. Fita said about dads in the room. If you're a dad, uh, we're thankful for you. You have a, a unique and special calling. We do. Me too. Placed on us. Been entrusted with much. So we encourage you in that. Um, and we pray alongside you that God helps you uh, walk in that calling well. Uh, I start us off this morning uh, with a question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That is a question I will wager you have either heard someone ask in your life or maybe you've asked it yourself. Um, and we can set aside for a moment the sort of academic notion of whether or not any of us is good. Okay, That's a conversation for another day. The heart of this question the heart of this question rings true, doesn't it? I mean, we, we see people, I think mostly what we mean by good is we see people who are decent people, kind people, trying to honor the Lord with their lives, and then we see them go through something difficult. And it just brings up questions. It brings up questions. It brings up questions for the Israelites um, in this text that we're going to look at this morning. Um, I want to say the good news for us is that God doesn't ask us to check our questions at the door. That's not a prerequisite for belief in our God. Uh, he doesn't ask us to check our intellects at the door or our emotions. God made your intellect and your emotion, and he is bigger than our questions. So he doesn't chide us for asking tough questions. You know what he does instead is he puts chapters in the Bible like Psalm 42 and 43 that Gabe so eloquently walked through last week in Psalm 44 that we'll look at today. He puts us in the Bible and he says, hey, <clears throat> I know you're going to go through stuff and I know it's going to be tough. But when you do that, you look to me, look to me in my word and I'll help you. So that's what we will do this morning. Uh, our psalm this morning gives us a window into a time in the Israelites' history where they're going through a terrible storm, uh, suffering something great. And just like the question I opened with, in the midst of this, they acknowledge God's sovereignty over their circumstances. And so it sort of brings them to this place of like, okay, we've got a loving God, and this loving God is putting us through a thing. So how do they process that? How do they respond to that? How should we respond to that? And what is the basis of that response? That's where we're headed this morning as we walk through this together. Uh, the title of the sermon is God's Sovereignty in Suffering. Uh, so I'm going to stop here for just a second and say that the last time I preached, I had, um, I had a sermon with only two main points. And look, proud as I was of those two main points, I thought they were appropriate. Um, I didn't feel like a complete Baptist. To be honest with you, I felt like I was like two-thirds of a Baptist. Um, so today, 
Today, we have three main points, and they all start with the same letter. <laughs> so if you've got like a Baptist scorecard in front of you, I don't know, it's like a thousand points, okay? God's sovereignty and suffering is the title. Three main points are sovereignty, suffering, and supplication. If you are able, stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. This is a long chapter. Uh, we will get through every word of it together this morning, uh, but for the purposes of our reading together, we're going to cover two verses. So pick up with me, um, if you will, in verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Be seated. As you can tell from those two verses, this is a text that is heavy with lament. And when we get to the middle part of this psalm, we will feel the full weight of that lament. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to start where the psalmist start, with a faithful and unwavering testament to God's sovereignty. Um, now, I know, I know over the summer we get kiddos in the room, and I got to tell you, like, I, I love seeing all these faces in the room. Uh, it makes me very happy. So we get kiddos in the room. Sovereignty is kind of one of those big words, those big bible words. So let me tell you what sovereignty means, okay? Sovereignty means supreme power or authority. Supreme power or authority. You know what I think of when I think of supreme? Anybody? Pizza. Absolutely. If you said anything else, like, what are we talking about? Supreme pizza. Do you know why supreme pizza is called supreme pizza? I'm going to tell you, it's because of all the normal pizzas in the world. I, there are fancy pizzas. I'm not talking about fancy. I'm talking about like the stuff you got at Pizza Hut as a kid. Of all those pizzas in the world, the supreme pizza is the one with the most toppings. That's why it's supreme. You may not like them, but it's got them. Just like that, supreme power authority is like having the most power authority. So that's what we mean when we say sovereign. It's like having the most power authority. And when we think of sovereign, we generally think of, uh, we think of kings. So we call kings sovereigns. Uh, they, can, they can make rules, and they can call shots, and when they tell people to do things, uh, those people do them. So we say that a king is sovereign. Uh, but you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us over and over and over is that God is the king of kings and the sovereign of sovereigns. So in other words, God is not sovereign like an earthly king, you know, with his kingdom. God is sovereign over earthly kings and their kingdoms and everything. Uh, Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1.11. He says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Uh, he's saying that Everything in the universe, stars, planets, all the millions of things in the galaxy, right down to the littlest stuff, the breath in your lungs, is being worked by God, all of it. And when he seeks counsel about how to work it, you know what he looks to? 
He looks to his will. That's what he looks to. And about his counsel, he says in Isaiah 46.10, he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. And this is what the psalmists are giving testament to in the first four, first three verses uh, of the psalm. They open verse one by referencing um, the deeds that God performed in the days of old. And then in verse two and three, you see they say it was God's sovereign hand that drove out the nations in the days of Moses and planted the Israelites in the promised land. It was God who afflicted the peoples but set the Israelites free. And it was God who won the Israelites' battles, not their own skill with a sword. And didn't we see this church? Didn't we see this in our nearly two years that we spent walking through Exodus? How many times over and over and over did we see God's sovereignty? Um, I flipped back through in, in preparing for this uh, and just looked through, uh, just flipping the chapters, and I was amazed at how many times I saw God's sovereignty at work. Uh, just a few of them that jumped out. God's saving of the Hebrew babies in chapter 1, right out of the gate, by the hands of the midwives who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Uh, God's calling of Moses through the burning bush. You remember this? Um, in chapter 7 through 12, God uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart through the plagues, through all of them. He never broke. It's because God was hardening his heart. That's the subject of Paul's discourse on the sovereignty of God in Romans 9. He's talking about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, also in chapter 12, you, you would miss this if you're not looking for it. Boz did a good job of talking about it. Do you remember the plundering of the Egyptians? Do you all remember that? This was literally the Israelites on their way out the door walking up to the Egyptians and they say, um, hey, so we got to go. We're getting out of here. Um, but before we go, we're going to need clothing and your gold and silver, all of it. And the Egyptians were just like, absolutely, yes, we would love to help you with that. Uh, so either they live in a different universe than the one I live in, people don't do that, or God was working on those people's hearts. This is God's sovereignty. And then God leading them out of Egypt, swallowing an army, a very formidable army in the sea, feeding the Israelites in the wilderness with birds from the air and manna from the ground and water from a rock. And then God giving the Israelites military victory over Amalek. Do you remember this? This is the one where Moses had his hands raised the whole time. And his people who were slaves, these weren't warriors, they were slaves, fought and won this battle. This is God's sovereignty over and over. And this is the first 17 chapters of a 40-chapter book God's sovereignty over and over. Bending nature and human wills to his own will so that his purpose and his plans would stand. That church is unbridled sovereignty. We serve a totally sovereign God. And if verses one through three are a recitation of God's sovereignty, four through eight are a pledge and a commitment by the Israelites to continue trusting in his sovereignty. Look with me, if you will. The psalmist say, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. 
but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. The Israelites here are pledging to continue to trust in God's sovereignty. And that's what you do when you truly believe a thing. If you really believe it, then you act in accordance with that belief. Real belief changes how you act. If you believe that the chair underneath you will hold you up for the rest of this sermon, then whenever I say be seated, you sit in it. If you didn't believe that when I said be seated, you just keep standing up. And it would be weird. We would all look at you. I would probably be really uncomfortable wondering, like, why is this person standing up? But you wouldn't sit in the chair if you didn't think it would hold you. Um, I was at the gas pump last night. If you, if you uh, believe that the little auto shutoff mechanism thing in the gas pump works, then what do you do? You plug it in your car. You open that baby up, prop it open as fast as it'll go, and you go sit in your car, and you wait for the thump at the end to let you know that you got to go. And if you truly believe in God's sovereignty, then you look to him for help. That's where you go, because you believe he's in control of all of it. This belief in God's sovereignty is the bedrock for so much in our faith, and it has myriad implications, implications outside the scope of our sermon this morning. But for our sermon this morning, we note that it is the bedrock, or it's part of, not all of, but part of the bedrock, the firm foundation under our feet that helps us not only weather storms when they come, but as Gabe said last week, sing in the storms when they come. So that's sovereignty. Most of the rest of this psalm is covering one such storm for the Israelites. It's a devastating storm that hits them and it causes pain and suffering on a national scale. So starting in verse 9, moving all the way through verse 22, we're going to listen and feel the suffering of the Israelites. And as we work through this section, uh, I just want to draw out a few observations about the nature of the suffering to help kind of frame up our discussion. Observation one, it was terrible. Um, look at some of the words starting in verse 9, just as you go down. They were rejected, disgraced. They've had to turn back from their foe. They've been plundered like sheep for slaughter, scattered among the nations. Don't skip past that. It's like scattered away from their home, maybe away from their family. Scattered among the nations. Sold for a trifle. The taunt of their neighbors, the scorn of those around them, a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. The summary verse is verse 15, where he just says, all day long, my disgrace is before me. It's all I think about. And shame has covered my face. This is deep. This is deep lament. They've gone through something tough. Um, while I was working through this, I was trying to think, like, I don't think in my 37, nearly 38 years that we've ever suffered a military defeat like this. Um, praise God. I'm thankful that we have it. Uh, but I was alive in 9-11. I remember that. Um, and that's the nearest thing in my life, I think, that I can remember to feeling like this must have felt. If you were alive through that and you remember it, uh, you remember those emotions too. So maybe, maybe we have a taste being able to kind of sympathize with some of what the Israelites were feeling here. So, number one, suffering was terrible. Two, it was under God's sovereign hand. 
Look at how every single verse from 9 to 14, look how they all start. You have rejected and disgraced us. You have made us turn back from the foe. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. To their credit, to their credit, the Israelites didn't stop believing in God's sovereignty when things got bad. They didn't say like in, in verses one through eight over here, when things are going great, oh, sorry, God is sovereign and good. He is good. And then get over here when things start to go bad and go, oh, can't believe our luck, you know. That's not what they did. They said over the sun and the rain, to go back to Gabe's illustration last week, over the sun and the rain, God is sovereign over both. And so that brings him to this place. It's back where we were in our intro. It brings him to this place of just having some questions. One of the questions that they had, you can tell by the way they talk in verses 17 through 22, one of the questions was, have we done something to deserve God's scorn? Have we... Have we gone astray in our hearts? Have we turned from God? Look with me starting in 17. They say, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. In the place of jackals here is just, um, it's the wilderness. You've broken us in the wilderness and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or spread out hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, here's where they are. They say, look, we're suffering something terrible. We believe God is sovereign over this suffering. And we believe it's not God's wrath or scorn on us. And yet, here we are. We're still going through this, and it's hard. Um, it's these moments, church, where our faith is tested. It's these moments where the enemy starts to whisper things in our mind like, how is this fair? How does this make any sense? How could a loving God do this to me or this person that I care about? And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there in your own life. Maybe you've had those same questions. Maybe you have those questions right now for something you're going through. Um, probably not because of national suffering, but because of something personal. Um, maybe a lost job. You know, you didn't want to lose your job, but you lost your job, and you don't know where money's going to come from. Don't know if you can stay in your house. Don't know how it's going to affect your kids. Putting strain on your marriage. You start asking questions. Man, this is tough. Um, maybe you're being mistreated by somebody. That's like you didn't do anything to them. They just kind of singled you out, you know? Or maybe your kid is at school. That kind of stuff is painful. It stirs up questions. Maybe the worst one, maybe you go to the doctor and you get the news that you're dealing with something, and it's serious. You don't know the prognosis, or maybe you do, and it's not very good. You've got to walk through that. These are the storms in life that test our faith. And long before the storm clouds roll in, we have to preach 
truth to ourselves. We have to hide God's truth in our hearts to combat these storms. And part of the truth that we should preach to ourselves, part of the answer here is that the ultimate culprit, the ultimate culprit is sin. We have to remind ourselves in the midst of the storm that God made paradise in Genesis 1 and 2. That's how he designed it. And with our sin entering the picture in Genesis 3, there was ultimately the source, all the brokenness that we see and feel in the world. So that is part of it. Um, but even with that truth, and it's important, but even with that, our souls want more than that when we're walking through something tough. Our souls want more than a culprit. They want a comfort. And I think it's on that front that the Apostle Paul is uniquely helpful to us this morning. Uh, so here's what I want us to do. Uh, if you've got, you got a Bible, turn to Romans 8. I want us to see this together. While you're turning there, um, I want to say what we're about to read in Romans 8 is aimed at the Christian. Paul's writing to Christians in this letter. What do I mean by Christian? I mean someone who believes everything the Bible says about Jesus, that he is exactly who the Bible says he is, and recognizing their own sin and need for a Savior. They have repented, turned from their sin, and embraced Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what I mean by Christian. Friend, if you have not done that this morning, or you don't know if you've done that, you want to know more about that, you don't leave here today without talking to somebody. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. You come and find me or find an elder, and you talk to somebody. Uh, okay, so Romans 8. If you know anything about Paul's life, uh, Paul is no stranger to suffering. Um, if you need a concise list of Paul's sufferings, he was kind enough to provide one for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've never read that, um, take my word for it for the purposes of this sermon that it's a lot. But go and read it today and just let your jaw hit the ground. I mean, that guy went through a lot as an apostle of Christ. Like where he should have died multiple times, it feels like, just reading that list. You're like, how are you alive? So when you get to... Uh, this stage of Paul's life, which is late in his life by the time he writes this letter to Roman, it's not a huge shock that when he's talking to these young Christians that he brings up the topic of suffering. Uh, so look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 8, verse 36. Toward the end of the chapter, it's kind of set apart. You can find it easily. Set apart from the other verses. Paul says this. As it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if that verse sounds familiar to you, it should. Uh, we just read it. That comes from Psalm 44, 22. So Paul is recalling the suffering, identifying the sufferings of his ancestors and what he's saying to this church in Rome. But here's the interesting part that I want you to see. In chapters of the Bible, we have little section headers. Um, Paul didn't write those. Somebody, some scholar wrote those, okay? We put those in there. That verse is smack dab in the middle of a section. And what is the section, what is the section header in your Bible? Do you see it? 
Mine is called God's Everlasting Love. So there's a verse There's a verse that says, for your sake we're killed all the day long in the middle of a section called God's everlasting love. Now, how do we reckon that works? Um, That's what I want us to look at. We're going to read through, start with me in verse 31. We're just going to read through this together. Let your soul be blessed. Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? These things, by the way, what he's talking about, he's just talked about God's sovereignty and our salvation He talks about how the Spirit helps us, how God's sovereign in our salvation. So he says, to that, what shall we say then to these things? Answer, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then Paul lists these earthly sufferings. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul says, can any earthly suffering ever separate us from the love of Christ? Answer in verse 37, a resounding no, no. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors for him who loved us. For I am sure, paraphrasing the, paraphrasing the last two verses, I'm sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul is saying to you, Christian, in the most convincing and passionate way he knows how, that God's love for you in Christ is completely and totally unshakable. And it's that truth that comes alongside the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of his unshakable love. It's his sovereignty and his love together that make the foundation that we put under our feet that keeps us sane when the storm comes. Might we suffer in this life? Yes. Yes, we might. Um, Paul was God's chosen to bring the gospel to the nations, probably the most important missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. He suffered tremendously. Christ, God's own son, suffered tremendously. We have no basis for thinking that it's always going to be sunshine in our lives. Nor do we have any basis for thinking that we're going to understand everything that happens to us this side of eternity, because we won't. But because we know we serve a God that is totally sovereign and unshakably good and loving, even in the midst of the storm, we can rest in him and trust him. John Piper puts it this way. I loved how he said it. He's talking about providence. Providence he defines as, um, as purposeful sovereignty. So it's, it's not just control, but it's control with a name. Okay, so when he says sovereignty, or when he says providence, you can kind of interchange those in your mind. But he says, we are not God. We are not omniscient. We are not all wise. And therefore, we can't always see the goodness and the wisdom and the justice of God and his providence. But Listen to this. He has proven himself to us in Christ over and over, especially at the cross. 
so we trust him. And for those who trust God and Christ, his sovereignty in suffering is not an unyielding problem. It's an unfailing hope. It means that in the suffering of Christians, love this, neither Satan, nor man, nor nature, nor chance is wielding decisive control. God is sovereign over our suffering, which means it's not meaningless. It is not wrath. It is not ultimately destructive to our souls, he means. It is not wanton or heedless. It is purposeful. It is measured. It is wise. It is loving. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, it is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We serve a good and loving God, and we can trust him through all our circumstances. All right, I promised you three S's. We'll look quickly at the last one, and then I'll close this. Last S is supplication. Supplication. If you believe everything we just said and the Bible said about God, then the only response that makes sense in the time of the storm is to cry out to God for help. We don't abandon him when things get bad. We don't curse him when things get bad. We cling to him and we plead for help. And you see, that's what, that's what, the, um, that's what the Israelites did at the end of this psalm. Look with me in the last four verses. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You think they believed in God's steadfast love in the midst of their storm? You bet they did. And what a faithful picture for us to follow. Church, I am, I am thankful uh, for texts like Psalm 42 and 43 and 44. And I know they can be heavier to go through, not always easy to go through, but I think they are a big help. Um, and I sincerely hope and pray for all of you in here. I pray for many, many sunny days in your life. I hope that for you. Um, but I think we all know that if we live long enough, the clouds will roll in at some point. And when they do, I want us to look back on these three chapters, hopefully, and ground ourselves in three truths. One, God is sovereign over the storm. You may know of like two storms in this room right now, and there may be 200. Not a one of them is a surprise to God. He's sovereign over every one of them. Two, God is with us in the storm. And so we just read in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's the promise of the Great Commission. I will be with you always. So God is with us in the storm. And then three, God gives us unshakable hope in the storm because of the promise of Christ and eternity. If we latch on to these things, then whatever comes in this life Whatever storm rolls in, I think we can say, as Paul did in Philippians 4, that I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or as faithful Job did in the midst of his suffering, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us pray. God, for all of those in the room today, Lord, who are going through a storm in their life, I pray that these words would encouragement. I pray, God, that you would let them feel your nearness. Help us to plant these truths deep in our heart, God, and cling to you in times of trouble. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.